good morning, or dear Father, you are the high king of heaven. You are a glorious God and there is none like you. And you have caused us to be born again to a living hope and we praise you that you are a God of hope. And we ask you this morning that you might just help all those moms that are at home taking care of sick children, that you'll be their healer and sustainer as they get through their day. We think of our country and our great need for the mercy of God. Father, now as we open your word, help us to hear it and understand it and know more about the name of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Good morning. In the 1960s, at the Bing Nursery School, on the campus of Stanford University, Walter Mischel conducted what has famously become known as the marshmallow test. Young children between the ages of four through six were taken to a small room, not much larger than a closet. They would be asked to sit on a chair in a small, at a small table, and then they would be shown a tray. It had a pretzel stick, a cookie, and a small marshmallow on it. They would be asked to pick one. A researcher would then make them an offer. They could either eat the one marshmallow right away, or if they were willing to wait while the researcher stepped outside for a few minutes, then when he returned, they could have two. The researcher would then tell them, just ring the bell when you want to eat the marshmallow, and he would come right back. And then they would leave and observe how the child dealt with temptation. Some children ate the marshmallow immediately. Some managed to delay for several minutes and then ate it. In the end, two out of three kids ate the marshmallow early. 30% managed to delay gratification for the 15 to 20 minute wait. That's long. These kids found a way to wrestle with temptation. Some covered their eyes, some turned around in their chair so they couldn't see it, some pulled on their pigtails, some kicked the chair. As the years went by, Dr. Mischel would have conversations with his daughters about their former classmates at the Bing Nursery School. He began to suspect a link between their academic performance as teenagers and their ability to wait for the second marshmallow. So he went back and did some more street research on the original participants. He came to find that the low delayers, those were the children that rang the bell quickly, they seemed more likely to have behavioral problems, both in school and at home. They got lower SAT scores. They struggled in stressful situations and had trouble finding, uh, paying attention. And they found it difficult to maintain friendships. Dr. Mischel, as a result of his research, he would go on to be considered the world's leading expert on self-control. Which brings us to our question today. What is self-control? And does, it, does having it make you more successful? And what if you don't have it? What if you are a low delayer or you were a low delayer? Is there any hope for you? What can you do? What can be done about the marshmallows in our lives? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 1? 
We're going back to Titus, but we're going to back up a little bit and start with chapter 1. Titus 1, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All right, now jump over to Titus chapter 2. And we'll start at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Okay, self-controlled is a repeated word throughout the book of Titus. Titus is only three short chapters, and yet Paul is going to instruct over and over and over again the need for self-control. You saw there that he starts with the elders, and he tells them, you need self-control. And then he goes to the older men, tells them, you need self-control. Then the older women are to teach the younger women, and then finally he says the young men are to have self-control. Each category is instructed to be self-controlled or sensible if you're using the NAS version. All right, so everyone's to have it. Why not then just give a blanket instruction? Church, y'all need self-control. Why give the gender-specific instruction? Why break it down into each category? Well, because there's going to be gender-specific application, okay? Even though self-control is going to be something both genders need, there are going to be certain aspects of it that are particularly challenging for men. There are going to be certain aspects of it that are particularly challenging for women. There are going to be things about self-control that a woman who's been there can more effectively teach a woman than a man. We can learn great doctrinal deep truths from our male counterparts, but they're not likely to be as much help modeling and showing us how to have self-control during certain times of the month. When your hormones are a little crazy and you're craving chocolate and everybody in your life is so irritating. <laughs> An older woman is going to be, who's been there, can teach a younger woman how to have self-control when she's dealing with the days of sleep deprivation that come with child rearing. All right, now there's something that we want to understand, though, and that is that the trait of self-control is not innate. It is something that requires training. It is something that requires cultivating. Walter Mischel said that, the great expert, and Paul is saying that. Now, when it comes to womanhood, we women can help each other with this. Here's our first point, and it's from the book. Number one, the best place to learn self-control is from an older woman who herself has learned and models godly self-control. All right, at this point, <clears throat> we need to be clear about what we mean by godly self-control. And to help get us started in that, I want to describe to you what it isn't. When I 
was in the fifth grade, my complexion started to get very bad. And so I did what most fifth grade kids do. You begin to compare yourself to the other kids, and you're staking out just what the other kids look like. And I began to notice that mine was bad in comparison. Maybe not the worst, but close. And I was very self-conscious of it, very, very motivated to get it clear. Now, this was uh, back in the days before there was the internet and before you had this endless amount of information at your fingertips. So what would usually happen is my mother would hear something or talk to somebody about it, and then she would tell me, and then I would, and then I would do it. So my mother learned that chocolate was bad for your complexion. And so I gave up chocolate. Uh, cakes, cookies, candy, anything. If it had chocolate in it, it did not pass these lips. Then she heard that cola was bad for your complexion. So, okay, I added to my list Coke and Pepsi. Now, those things did not flow like water, like they do today, but um, still, I loved them. I loved chocolate, I loved Coke and Pepsi, so it was hard to go without those things. Um, a little while later, my mom uh, came to me and said, you know, Mrs. Towns said that her son had a bad complexion and he gave up peanut butter and it really helped. So I gave up peanut butter. I quit eating peanut butter. A little while later, and I loved peanut butter, um, sometime later we found out that brewer's yeast was good to help you fight your complexion. I don't know if you know what brewer's yeast is. I'm still not sure what it is, but <laughs> you buy it at a health store. And, um, and you mix it with liquid. You don't put it on your face, you drink it. Now, I don't know if you've ever worked with yeast before, um, if you've ever made you know, pizza dough or bread, but you know what yeast smells like. It's very pungent and musty and sour. Well, imagine mixing that in a cup of, I don't know, refuse. That's what it was like. It was <laughs> the gaggiest gaggiest thing I'd ever had. But I would muscle up all the willpower I could and I would gag that thing down. Well, it was not the miracle cure that we expected, so um, I, we, we, I quit doing that. However, by the time I was in the eighth grade, I had full-blown cystic acne explosion going on in my face. And I can remember my aunt coming to the house and seeing me, she hadn't seen me in a while, and she looked at me and then she turned to my mother and said, so what are we doing about this? Well, it was not long after that that I started going to a dermatologist. And back in those days, very rare. People did not go to the dermatologist. You didn't have the money for it. But my parents were very compassionate and very concerned. And so um, they made the sacrifice to be able to take me. So the first day I go to the doctor and he takes a look at my complexion. He gives me a prescription that I'm to put on my face that, tastes, or that smells a lot like the brewer's yeast that I was eating formerly. And then he gave me a list of five things I was not to eat. He said, you're not to eat chocolate. You're not to eat peanuts. You're not to drink cola. You're not to eat shellfish. Well, nobody in my town was eating shellfish. And then fifthly, he said, you're not to have green pepper. And I can remember looking at that doctor and thinking, finally, there is something on this list I don't want to eat. <laughs> but from the time I was in the fifth grade up until I was about 21, 22, there's, there's a probably a 10 to 12 year 
range in there, I could count on one hand the number of times that I ever tasted any of the things that were on that list. I was freakishly self-disciplined. I suspect that had I been one of the kids that were tested at the Bing nursery, I'd have left with two marshmallows. <laughs> now here's the question. When we talk about biblical self-control, is that what we mean? When a person rustles up all that willpower inside of them so that they're able to say no to something or that they're able to say yes to something like brewer's yeast. When I started my whole acne fighting regiment in the fifth grade, I did that in the fifth grade. I did not become a believer until I was in the seventh. All right, that means for two years, I was doing something that could be done by a non-believer and doing it well. When we read in Titus about the need to be self-controlled, is it the same thing I was doing with my diet? What is the difference between what Dr. Mitchell would tell us to do to be successful and what Paul is telling us to do in the book of Titus? Is there a difference? Here's our next point. Number two, scripture does not teach that we are to control ourselves by sheer willpower. The self-control that we're talking about here is not sheer willpower. So if it's not that, then what is it? Well, the, probably the best way to do this and understand biblical self-control is to work through those six investigative questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Let's work through those and, um, on the topic of self-control. So let's start with what. What is biblical self-control? The Greek word that's used in the book of Titus uh, for the word self-control or sensible is the word sophron. There are a number of different English words that are used to translate it. Sometimes you're going to see the word sensible, sober, discreet, prudent, temperate, moderate, self-control. Now, why so many? Well, because it's hard to capture the meaning with, one, with just one English word. If you did your homework, and I have a picture of this on your, on your paper, you see that the word sophron comes from two Greek words. The first part means safe or sound, healthy, and then that second part means mind. So it means having a saved a sound, a safe mind. It's a person who acts like they are in their right mind, spiritually speaking. Okay, the last syllable, friend, that comes from the ancient word, which means, Greek word, which means to rein in or curb. You read that in the homework, the modern Greek word for breaks. That's what it is, friend. So it carries the idea of restraint or putting on the brakes. Here's our next point. Number two. Number three, self-control is the basic idea of cultivating the skill of living a thoughtful, careful life in which we do what is right despite our desires. All right, that's a definition for what it is. Let's talk about who should have it. Well, we kind of answered that already, didn't we? We already mentioned that each different category was to exercise it, but we need to remember something. Paul is writing in Titus to believers. He's writing concerning believers that live on the island of Crete. Now, do you remember how we described those people living on Crete? We said, or the book of Titus said, they were liars, they were lazy gluttons, they were evil beasts. Liars, 
lazy gluttons, evil beasts. Okay, like that's the opposite of self-control. All right, Paul is writing to believers that live in a culture that is not practicing self-control, and he's telling the believers, you're to be marked by it. You live in a world that doesn't have a clue what self-control, what sophron is. You show them what it looks like. Here's our next point. Number four, genuine self-control is spirit control nurtured and developed by the believer. Understand, Paul had no expectations for the unbelievers in Crete to be exercising biblical self-control. All right, take a look at verse 11. We're still in chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right, that's the gospel. All right, and I want you to notice what it trains us to do. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, here's the thing. We don't ever want to understand the virtue of self-control apart from the gospel, apart from the grace of God. It's the gospel, it's the grace of God that allows for us to practice self-control. You see, if it's uh, apart from the gospel, then it's not spirit-controlled. It would just be... Uh, good old-fashioned willpower, and don't miss this, a form of self-righteousness. All right, here's our next point. Number five, self-control exercised in the flesh apart from the Spirit of God is a form of self-righteousness. All right, let's talk about why. Why are believers to exercise self-control? There are Probably many ways we can answer this. We're going to focus on two. Look back at verse 3. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Older women, they are to teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, watch now, that the word of God may not be reviled. All right, now jump down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, watch now, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Right now, there's one last passage. We're going to go to chapter 3 in the book of Titus. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out in, on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, Paul is telling them in the book of Titus, you are to adorn the gospel. You used to be foolish. You used to be people that indulged yourself in your passions and your pleasure. You used to be people without self-control. 
But then the kindness and the goodness and the love of God appeared and you were saved by the mercy of God. So what are you to do now? You're to go out there and put the kindness and the goodness of God on display. You're to make the gospel attractive. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, verse 1. You're going to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You're going to speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling. You're going to be gentle and show perfect courtesy to everyone. You're going to be husband-likers. You're going to be children-likers. And do you know what? All of those things that you are commanded to do are going to require self-control. Here's our next point. Number six. Self-control is essential if we are to effectively commend the gospel. I want to ask you, as you are exercising self-control, why do you do it? Who is it for? Is it for Jesus? Is it to display the gospel or is it to display you? When I was using all my self-will and power to, um, you know, to avoid chocolate and peanut butter, I was doing it so that my face would clear up. I wanted myself to be glorified. Actually, I just wanted to be tolerable and blend in with the other students, but you get my point. I, it, it was a selfish motivation. Why do you practice self-control? Why do you go to the gym three days a week? Is it so that you can take care of your body to glorify God? Or is it so that you look good in a pair of jeans? Why do you exercise self-discipline and eat only salad and healthy recipes? Is it to take care of the body that God gave you to his glory? Or is it to be able to post pictures about them and have everybody think you're a great mother? When we practice self-control, we want Jesus to get the glory. Now here's another reason we practice it. Turn to Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, 28. This is a famous passage about self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In Bible times, city walls were crucial to survival. If the walls were broken, a band of robbers could come in, a neighboring country, a wild animal. They could enter into your gates and harm you. They could harm your children. They could harm your community. In fact, I want you to see an example of this. Turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3 says this, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. All right, Nehemiah, he weeps and he mourns because he knows that people don't stand a chance in a city without walls. You could count on two things in a city without walls. You could count on trouble and shame. Some of your versions may use the uh, words distress and reproach. Here's our next point, number seven. 
Self-control serves as a protective function in our lives. Without it, we are defenseless, exposed to attack, and easy prey for the enemy. A lack of self-control gives our enemies opportunity and makes us vulnerable. All right, that leads us to the question of where, and here's our next point, number eight. The fight for self-control takes place on the battlefield of your mind which is no surprise because we're talking about having a saved, healthy mind. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay, so the battle is in the thinking. We have to learn to think straight. Okay, next we come to the question, when? When should we exercise self-control? Now, the answer, the fast answer to that would be in everything, all the time. But if you listen to the video on this, they gave six categories that we are to be exercising self-control in, and they all started with T. So I'm gonna, we're going to go over them now. Number, the first one, A, is your treasure. Is your treasure. Statistics tell us the average U.S. household with debt carries $15,675 in credit card debt. $132,000 in total debt, and that was not in addition to the mortgage. The, um, some, supposedly, some of this is attributed to hard times, medical bills, but the bulk of the credit card problem is usually attributed to the desire to get more stuff. We are not in the habit of telling ourselves no. Paul would say to us, you may be living among the Cretans, but you are to be different. Is the way you are dealing with your finances and money spirit-controlled. What are you teaching your children about money and possessions? All right, here's the next one. B is the temple, the temple. All right, in the book of Timothy, Paul explained that women were to be self-controlled in the way they dressed, in their appearance, your clothing, your accessories, everything that you wear, what message does it relay? Does it say, hey, check out my butt? I am noticing that it is a very popular trend these days to put on a pair of colored pantyhose. Um, I, I think maybe you could call them, what are they, tights or leggings or something like that, and then you wear them as pants. Um, they're pantyhose. <laughs> it's pantyhose, and they need to be worn under things. Okay? Do your clothes display your glory, or do they display the gospel? What about your diet and eating? Much has been written about our American addiction to overeating. Does that need to come under the control of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this can go both ways. One writer pointed out, there are no passages in the Bible instructing women to be thin. It may be that you're too consumed with diets and exercise and pursuing the perfect body. Does that need to come under the control of the Holy Spirit? I want to read to you something that Jen Wilkin wrote. She said, what if we decided to fast not from food, but from body talk? 
Sure, hit the gym, eat the paleo diet, run six miles a day, wear Spanx from your neck to your knee. Just stop talking about it. <laughs> stop telling your friend she looks skinny. Instead, tell her you love her sweet spirit. Choose compliments that spur her to pursue that which lasts instead of that which certainly does not. If someone comments on your own shape, say thanks and change the subject. Banish body talk to the same list of off-limits topics as salaries, name-dropping, and colonoscopies. Apply the discipline you use to work out to controlling your tongue. Do this for your sisters, and by the grace of God, we could begin a legacy of womanhood that celebrates character over carb avoidance, godliness over glamour, sister in Christ. Physical perfection is not within our grasp, but astonishingly, holiness is. Where will you devote your energy in the new year? Go on a diet from discussing shape and size. Next on our list. C is the tongue. Is your tongue under the control of the spirit? Does your language honor Christ? Are you snapping at your husband? Are you repeating juicy bits of gossip? Do you slander? D, temperament. Are your emotions and feelings under control? Do you give yourself a pass during certain times of the month? Rachel Jenkovich, she has a great article about teaching our daughters to tame their emotions. She writes, we tell our girls that their feelings are like horses, beautiful, spirited horses, but they are the riders. And then she goes on to elaborate and has some very excellent teaching on this and points out that the horses are not the problem. Our goal is not to cripple the horse, but to equip the rider. All right, E, next is time. Is your time under the control of the Holy Spirit? One recent study showed that in the United States, people checked their Facebook, Twitter, and other social media accounts a staggering 17 times a day. That means at least once every waking hour, if not more. It is found that Americans are the highest consumer of monthly data, spending the most time per day on their phones with a staggering 4.7 hours. Now you're only awake for about 16, so that means that shakes out to about a third of your day. Are you a part of that statistic? Okay. Does the way you spend your time need sophron? All right, here's the next one. Your thoughts. What do you need to rein in when it comes to your thoughts and your imaginations? Maybe you see something that makes you anxious, and instead of putting the brakes on it, you replay it over and over again until you get more anxious. Maybe you get on, somebody, on somebody's Facebook and you find yourself feeling jealous of the vacation that they just took or the, or the fancy do-it-yourself projects that there always seems to be able to do. And you find yourself comparing yourself back and forth. Or maybe you see somebody and you can't help but covet their little tiny waist and the way they always can wear a belt with things. <laughs> what thoughts do you need to rein in? All right, here's another important point about the need to 
when we need to exercise self-control. Here it is, number nine. The crashes in our lives are generally not caused by a major one-time brake failure, but more often a series of small failures along the way. You don't just wake up one morning and have an affair. It happens when day after day you don't put the brakes on the small stuff. Day after day, you fail to put the brakes on a bad attitude or an unkind word or an immoral thought or fantasy. All right, that brings us to the question of how. How should we exercise self-control? How do we do it? Well, some of you may be old enough to remember Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan, she, as First Lady, she's remembered for leading the fight against drugs, drug use against drugs among youth. So it's said that one day she was visiting a school, talking to them about the dangers of drugs, and one little girl came up to her and said, what should I do if somebody offers me drugs? And she looked at the little girl and said, just say no. Just say no. Well, with the help of some marketers, that turned in, into a major campaign against drugs. T-shirts were printed, billboards, public service announcements were made. If you lived during that time, you knew the phrase, just say no. Years later, as you might expect, there were those that were very grateful that she brought the problem to the spotlight. Um, there were also critics that said it didn't work. They said it's not enough to tell somebody just say no. It's not that simple. You can't address the problem like drugs and just reduce it to just say no. Well, when it comes to exercising biblical self-control in our lives, the Bible has more to say than just say no. Now, your authors did, um, had some great practical tips on this, a whole chapter uh, towards it. We're going to do some consolidating and go over this very quickly. How do we exercise self-control? Point A is relationship. Pull out all the stops. The authors explained the most powerful and effective way to put the brakes on your thoughts and your actions is to pull out all the stops in your relationship with your Lord. Hold nothing back. Be fully invested. Ed Welch, he has a great article on self-control. He put it this way. He said, self-control is like any other feature of wisdom in that it is learned by contemplating a person. Contemplating a person. Rather than give you a 12-step 12 12 program to learn, he gives you a person to know. Pull out all the stops on knowing him. Here's the next one. B is recalibrate. Okay, the authors pointed out that we often spend way too much try time trying to figure out or stop a behavior when we really need to go back to the root and find out what kind of thinking produced the behavior in the first place. They say, what if we were to pause and recalibrate our minds with truth? All right, here's C. Replace. Replace wrong patterns with virtuous ones. This is a review. We've talked about this before. As you're putting off certain things in your life, you want to fill the void with virtuous behavior. God never says, just say no. He says, say no to this, but start this. Okay? It'll always be put off, but put on. Both. All right, D, the last one, is rely on the Holy Spirit. And I want us to turn to one last verse on this one. 
Second Peter. Find Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one, verse two. This is one of those verses you should have underlined in your Bible, memorized. It says this: Second Peter, chapter one, verse two. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you realize that you do not have to beg God for the power to exercise self-control? If you are a believer, you do not have to beg for it because you've already got it. Okay, okay, it could be mine. Um, I didn't know if we, it was telling us to leave. Or, you know, like a fire drill or something. Okay, um, okay, come back. Let's read the verse again. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you realize that you do not have to beg God for the power to exercise self-control? Why? Because if you are a believer, you've already got it. You have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. All right, now here's what that means. Let's say that you have just had a really difficult day with fussy kids. You've spent the day wiping runny noses and dirty bottoms and spilt milk. And your husband comes home and he sees the toys on the floor and the laundry and the crushed Cheerios that have been there for three days. And he asks you, so what did you do all day today? <laughs> or maybe he says, um, uh, when, when will dinner be ready? Or maybe he says, hey, do you care if I go golfing tomorrow? And, you know, maybe there's something inside of you that just really wants to explode and give him a piece of your mind. Or maybe you just want to fall in a heap and cry and have yourself a little pity party. Or maybe you want to be accusatory and tell him to fix his own dinner. But you see, you can glorify God in that moment. You can have self-control. You can put the brakes on all of it and have a godly response. Why? Because you have been given everything you need to live a godly life. You might be saying, you don't know what it's like. By six o'clock, I've had it. I'm spent. You don't understand. Well, actually, I do. Now, there's a lot of things that you're dealing with that I don't understand, but it doesn't matter. Because if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you have the power of the resurrection living in you. You have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have been equipped to give a godly response. Now, what if you blow it? What if you mess up? What if you say something ugly? What's to keep us from becoming completely overwhelmed with our failures and our weaknesses and our, and our sin? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Grace and peace multiplied 
grace, amazing grace. You're the product of grace. You're the recipient of grace. Here's our last point, number 10. We not only have the promise of God's power to exercise self-control, we have the gift of grace when we don't. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for grace. We pray, we pray that it'll multiply grace and peace, multiply it in our lives. And Father, we pray that we will be women marked by self-control, the kind of self-control that puts the glory of God on display, not ourselves. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.